Pandora's box is a, it's a well-known phrase. It's used to talk about something that has a, a potentially, it's a source of potentially endless trouble. So you don't want to open Pandora's box because once you open that box, whatever comes out, you can't get back into the box. And the phrase comes from a story in Greek mythology. So just as some background, the Titans were these giant beings that were supposedly the ones who ruled the earth before the Olympian gods. And so in at least one telling of this story, the Titan Prometheus created the first humans. They were only men at that point, though. And his brother, Epimetheus, I think, he created animals, but he when he created the animals, he, he gave them everything necessary for their own self-preservation, but he left nothing for men to protect themselves with. And so Prometheus wanted to give men fire for protection. Now at this point, the gods had conquered the Titans, and Zeus, the king of the gods, he said, no, Prometheus can't give them fire, because fire is only for the gods. Well, Prometheus disobeyed. He stole fire, gave it to men. Zeus was furious, so he, he punished Prometheus, but he also believed that men should be punished. So Zeus ordered the Greek gods to create women. Not, not just the women were the punishment, that's not what... He, he wasn't, they weren't the punishment, they were the means to the punishment. Now I, I realize that's not much better, this is Greek mythology. You know, they're going to get it wrong. But, so... Th- Zeus, he commissioned the first woman to be created by the gods, and her name was Pandora. It means every gift, or all the gifts. She was given the gift of beauty, wisdom, kindness, generosity, health, everything she would need, including curiosity. And Zeus then also fashioned this box. It's a jar probably in the original, but a box. And he put in that box some other gifts from the gods. He gave the box to Pandora, and he said, He gave it to her to take care of, but he told her, never open it. And of course, Pandora couldn't do that because of her curiosity. She opens the box, and out of everything, out of all the the box, out of it comes all these things. Greed, envy, hatred, pain, disease, hunger, poverty, war, and death. And there's no way to put it back in the box. So the story's meant to explain, one, it's a cautionary tale to say, watch out what you do. Once you do it, you can't get it back. But it also is, is an explanation for all the evil and all the, the bad things in this world, where they came from. thing is, our present state is not the mere result of curiosity. The situation that we're in has actually come with a great deal of intentionality. The present state that we're in actually stems from the intentions of two parties, both humanity and the one true God. So in both of these stories, in the Bible, and and so in Romans 1, and in the story of Pandora, you see the wrath of God, or the wrath of the gods. But there's a solution. Now the solution isn't from a rogue agent of the divine king. The solution in Romans comes from the divine king himself. And so if we're going to understand the solution that the Bible tells us about... We have to understand the problem. We have to understand what really is this situation. What is the situation we're in? How did we get here? Who's to blame for this mess? Between God and humanity, 
The blame rests squarely on our shoulders. As we saw last week, we're to blame. In the words of Jack Johnson, it was you, it was me, it was every man. We've all got the blood on our hands. We only receive what we demand, and if we want hell, then hell's what we'll have. So Paul is in Romans 1, you can turn there. He is continuing to share the bad news with us. In chapter 1 and verses 24 through 32. And he's explaining why we need the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. The reason is because, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Last week we saw there are two sides to that, two parts to why we deservedly face God's wrath. On the one hand, God is known, but God is rejected. And so in the verses that follow that, Paul's explaining the results of that rejection. It's the results of the rejection of God that explain our world. These results that we're going to look at, they're actually expressions of God's wrath. So it's true, humanity one day, we're going to face God's wrath. But we are currently experiencing the wrath of God. That's why it's revealed in the presence, in the present tense there in verse 18. So what Paul is stressing in these verses that we're going to look at are the consequences. And he's saying very clearly, the consequences fit the crime. God's punishing wrath is righteous. So what God does in response to our rejection of him, it's right. It's the right thing. We deserve it. The point, though, is not to encourage us to try to fix the problem that we see in here. When we see all these different things, Paul's not trying to tell us how to fix it by telling us about them. In that sense, it is like Pandora's box. We can't put it back in the box. We can't fix it. What he's doing, the point of Paul telling us this, is to explain why we need God's solution. Why we need the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. Now, he does make some things very clear in this passage. He, he explains what is sinful, what God says is sinful. So these were verses, they reveal what is dishonorable and inappropriate. So we do recognize our need for God to make us righteous. We have failed to do that. And in order to be righteous, in order to receive in order to experience this righteousness, we do have to turn away from these things. From the kind of living that's described here. So we want to acknowledge this is not, this is describing living that we should not do. It's not what our Lord and Savior has called us to. Again, though, the major goal is so that we respond to his solution, so that we turn from sin, not trying to fix it, but to turn to Jesus. To trust in him. So as you're looking at Romans 1 verses 24 through 32, just want to get our bearings in this passage. Understand how it's organized. Verse 24 tells us that these verses, they're a consequence of the verses he's just talked about. That's why he says, therefore, at the beginning of it. And the consequence that he repeatedly mentions is that God gave them up. He says it three times. Verse 24, verse 26 Verse 28, the reason 
that God gave them up is stressed with words like because in verse 25, for this reason in verse 26, since in verse 28. In every case, including the therefore, the reason God gave them up is what we have done. It's mentioned in verses 18 through 23. So what God's doing in this passage, he's responding to what humanity did in verses 18 or 19, really, through 23. And his response to what we've done is to give us up. But he doesn't just point to verses 18 through 23. He actually restates it two times in our text. He says the same thing in verse 25 and verse 28. He's repeating himself just to make clear. What is it that's brought this about? And so... In verse, verses 18 through 23, again, we saw that God is known and God is rejected. Paul says the same thing in verse 25. He says, they, all humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Paul's saying, when he says the, the truth about God, he, he's saying what God has made known, the knowledge of him that he talked about, the knowledge of his eternal power and nature. That's what he's talking about. He says that truth is what they've rejected. The truth is, is God himself then. Knowing God. So they have taken this truth and they exchanged it for a lie. They replaced God, the truth, with what is not God, the lie. And he says, he explains it in the next line by saying, they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They had the truth, but they rejected it for the lie. They knew the one who's worthy to be glorified, to be honored, to be thanked, and they chose instead to glorify something else. They replaced God. They replaced the one who made them with what he had made with what's not worthy of honor and thanks. And so, when we honor and thank what God has made, we have exchanged the truth for the lie. And, and what Paul's saying is we all do this. This is true of us all. <clears throat> he, he summarizes the same thing in verse 26, much shorter. He simply says, <clears throat> they did not see fit to acknowledge God. He's just repeating himself to be very clear. Saying God is known but rejected. He was, he was meant to be acknowledged, meant to see his, the knowledge of him and respond to it. But we did not see fit to acknowledge him. And so the result of that is <clears throat> God's intentional action to give us up to these things, to give up humanity to these various things. And again, the way that Paul talks in these passages, he's saying what God has done is very appropriate. It's fitting. It fits with the rejection. What God is doing, since we have given up him, he's given us over to ourselves. What the Bible's talking about here, what Paul's talking about is that God gave us what we want. In rejecting God's rule, in rejecting his guidance, his desires, we then used our own desires, used our own guidance, our own intelligence to determine what we should do. And so because of that, God said, here you go. I'm going to turn you over to the power of your intelligence, your desires. 
Now they will rule you. Instead of submitting to his rule, we're now ruled by ourselves. Now many people would look at that and they'd say, that's great. That's what I want, right? That's, that's a good thing, right? No. Paul, he knows how egregious this is to the point that he breaks off at one point with this doxology at the end of verse 25. He's, he's talking about the creator who he says is blessed forever. Amen. It's, it doesn't fit. He's just broken off just to stress how bad it is what we have done. We have no idea what we've done. We think it'd be great to be able to rule ourselves. And Paul's saying, we've given up the guidance of God who is blessed forever. We've given up the focus on him, his intelligence, and we've replaced it with our own. And when we're under our own rule, when we rule ourselves, we don't produce what is good. We produce what ought not to be done, what deserves death. That's what Paul says in these verses. So Paul provides two descriptions of the results of this rejection in these verses. There's two results here. Desires that produce dishonored bodies and intelligence that produces inappropriate lives. So he's again saying these consequences fit the crime. Since we do not respond to God with honor, our desires now dishonor our bodies. And since we do not consider God appropriate for our lives, God now, our, our intelligence rather, now produces inappropriate lives. And the goal, again, is to see why we need God to restore us to himself through Jesus. So let's look at the first of these two results of our rejection. Since we do not respond to God with honor, our desires now dishonor our bodies. So though we knew God, we did not honor him as God. That's what he says in these previous verses. We pursued our own desires. So God turned us over to the power of our desires. And what Paul says is now, under that power, our desires produce what dishonors our bodies. Again, you can see the appropriateness. We did not honor God, so now we dishonor ourselves. And this is how Paul expresses it. You look at this. He's talking about the transfer of power. He says it's in this realm of the lusts of their hearts. These desires, instead of recognizing and responding to God's glory, we pursued our own desires. And so God hands us over to it. He hands us over to the desires and the impurity that we're pursuing. So our desires are for this impurity. And that's what he's turning us over to. Not realizing that these impure objects that we desire, they're not what God intended for us. They actually bring about our ruin. They dishonor our bodies. So, what does he mean by that? Paul's going to go on to explain in verse 26. He's clarifying. Since we've lusted after what is not God, God's given us over to those lusts. To pursue impurity. To dishonor our bodies. And then this is how he puts it in verse 26. He gave us over to the power of dishonorable passions. He's saying the same thing. And then he explains what that involves. It involves women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, you could see in the text why this is completely fitting. So you look at, look at the words exchanged in verse 25 and verse 26. In exchanging the creator for the creature, we're turning creation on its head. So when what should happen is we 
honor the one who made us, not what he made. We're going in the opposite direction. We're going inward instead of upward. And so God says, or Paul says, God gives us over to that reversal. What God is doing is giving us over to our undoing of the created order. That's what Paul means by natural and contrary to nature. What fits and what does not fit with the created order. This is wording that Paul doesn't normally use. He's using it because it's familiar to the Romans. The Stoics used it to talk about the natural order of things. So Paul uses biblical language when he says, this is what you'd find in the Old Testament, impurity. It's talking about the same thing, though. What fits with God's creation. So Paul's take, he, what he's saying is, God established order. When he created the world, he created it to work together in a certain way. And since we've rejected that, we've rejected his order, primarily, first of all, by rejecting what we were made for, to glorify him. We have, instead of worshiping the creator, we now worship the creation. And so, God, in our rejection, he just works with, he just hands us over to the direction that we pursued. We want to turn creation on its head. God gives us over to that. So, when humanity rejects their creator and what he wants, and we choose our wants, our wants actually no longer fit the purpose God gave us those wants for, those desires. So, what Paul's talking about, he's very explicit by using the word relations. We're very careful with our language. But that's sexual. He's saying that women exchange their sexual intimacy, their relations with men, what he designed for, cre the creator designed for our intimacy. They exchange that with what doesn't match with the created order. So God created physical intimacy for humans with a purpose. He gave us those desires for a reason. That's why he designed men and women's bodies to fit together in a particular way. It's by design. It was to fulfill the blessing that he gives in the first chapter of Genesis. To be fruitful and multiply. So he gave us desires for physical intimacy. The goal of those desires was to achieve that purpose. To be fruitful and multiplied. To fill the earth with image bearers who glorify him. And what we did is we refused to glorify God. And since we refused to glorify God and instead of pursuing him and the desire for him, we pursue just desire itself, we're now broken. We're corrupted. But what does God do when we do that? Does God make us conform? Does he force us to comply? He doesn't. In fact, it gives us what we want. And somebody could argue, well, God shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't give us what we want. We're not children. He's not talking about children. We're responsible agents. A child, yes, you could say he shouldn't give a child what he wants. He doesn't know any better. We know better. That's Paul's stress. So in God giving us what we want, we have no excuse. We don't even have a complaint. We're getting what we want. We're responsible. And he says the same is true for men in verse 27. The men likewise gave up, their na gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. There is no real question about what the Bible is talking about, what Paul is talking about. 
it is disingenuous for any scholar to say, we don't really know what Paul's talking about. We know what Paul's talking about because he's saying the same thing that any Jewish person in his day would have said. Every Jewish person knew that the Old Testament says, you can't do this. Homosexual relations are wrong. Leviticus 18.22 clearly says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20 verse 13 says, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Paul's saying the same thing. Now, Somebody could look at Leviticus and and listen to me quote it, and they'd say, well, that's part of the Old Covenant. So just as we can now wear cotton polyester shirts and eat bacon, which are also disallowed under the Old Covenant, maybe this goes out the door too. Understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I don't even bring up Leviticus here to make the point that we shouldn't obey this. What I'm bringing Leviticus up is to understand that's where Paul is getting what he's saying. What he's applying to Universal man outside of the covenant that God made is this law. This is universally applicable. This is what Paul's talking about. That's why he uses the terminology of male and female. Male comes right from this text. So, it's very clear what Paul's saying. He's saying that this is wrong. Homosexual relations are wrong. Not just certain kinds. The entire endeavor. Now, what you could think, in in our world where we tend to think that people in the past just didn't get it, you know, that Paul, he was just, he's just bound by his culture in saying this. Moses was bound by his culture, and you could imagine everybody thought homosexuality was wrong. That's why this is talked about. We've learned that it's not wrong, so we can look at this differently now. But understand... That's not actually the case. In the Old Testament times when Moses wrote, and in the first century when Paul wrote, homosexuality was accepted. The society accepted it. Now, they did have some cultural issues with men that acted effeminate, but the acts themselves were perfectly fine. One person's pointed out that 14 of the 15 first emperors in Rome all slept with men. The Bible, in talking about this issue, has always been countercultural. The culture has accepted it consistently. And the Bible speaks into that culture and says it's wrong. But again, understand what Paul's saying here. We may not recognize it, but homosexual desires are the consequence of God's wrath. They're not actually what God's wrath initially, is against here in this passage. Now, yes, his wrath is against it, but what he's talking about here is that God handed us over to this. This is an expression of God's action, his wrathful punishment. That's what he means by the last part of verse 27, receiving in themselves. By this act, they're receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. The penalty is their homosexual desires. So, In exchanging the created order, exchanging that for what they wanted to do, the result, that that is actually a result of their first exchange. God, when they exchanged him for creation, handed them over to it. 
So, these consuming passions are actually the result of God giving humanity what they wanted. Turning us over to our desires. It tells us why we need the righteousness of God by faith. Because we are seeing the evidence of his wrath. Now, these things are worthy of God's wrath, but they are equally the result of it. The truth is, though, homosexuality is not the only way to express the result of our rejection of God. The reason why Paul chooses it here seems to be because it's the clearest way to illustrate what we've done in turning creation on its head. By taking the things that God's given us that we should have pursued according to his order and rejecting that, we've turned things on its head. And so this is the easiest way to describe that. Other perversions could have, other sexual perversions could have been listed here. Adultery, fornication, pornography, all evidence our experience of God's wrath. We're turned over to our desires. And so we pursue these other incorrect, wrong, sinful approaches to sexuality. This one is just the most obvious, easiest way to get at it. God's design is for a man to experience physical intimacy with a woman and vice versa. That's clear from biology. That's that's just evident. It's even self-evident. The system only works a certain way. God creates the system. So when two men or two women employ that system, it doesn't work. It doesn't take rocket science to figure this out. We just need the birds and the bees. What was the system for? Offspring. When we use the system in ways it wasn't intended for, that doesn't happen. It doesn't, it doesn't come about. So, this reversal that we see in, in our social interaction with others, it's a symptom of a prior reversal. We replace the creator with the ourselves and with our own desires. And again, what this illustrates is our need for Jesus. But it's not the only thing that illustrates our need for Jesus. So there are two descriptions of the results of our rejection in these verses. The first is desires that produce dishonored bodies. The second is intelligence that produces inappropriate lives. So God gave us intelligence. And it was meant to recognize him, to acknowledge him. That's not how we use it. Since we do not consider God appropriate for our lives, our intelligence now produces inappropriate lives. Again, you can see the consequences fit the crime. We don't view God as appropriate, so our lives are now inappropriate. We, we in our society, we place a high value on intelligence. I mean, in many ways, it's the be-all, end-all for distinguishing ourselves from other things. You know, when we think about, when we analyze animals, we, we will determine the level of their intelligence by comparing them to us and our intelligence. And right now we're, we're trying to replicate our intelligence in some these inanimate objects, artificial intelligence. We're taking what we understand, our intelligence, as kind of like the, the template. The question is whether our intelligence is a good example. Because what Paul explains here is that because of our rejection, it's not a good example anymore.
The Bible describes us as flawed. What we were meant to use our intelligence for, we have refused to do that. We're meant to recognize God, to discern his eternal power and divine nature. But once we refuse to do that, refuse to use our intelligence for what it was made for, God's now taken an appropriate action. So you can't see that as easily in our translation, but the word see fit in verse 28 and the word translated debased, they're very similar. <clears throat> One's a verb and the other's a noun, but the root is the same. And the point is, Paul's making a connection between what happened. We were supposed to do something with the knowledge of God, and we refused to do that. So we've experienced something in return. We were supposed to use our minds correctly, and now that we've refused to do that, God has handed us to, over to the incorrect use of our minds. That's what he's getting at. We used them incorrectly, and now we are under the power of those incorrect uses for our mind. So he's giving us what we want. But when we use our intelligence in a way it wasn't meant for, what we produce is not good. We do what, we ought, what ought not to be done. So, again, the sin here is evidence of what God has done. In his wrath, he's responded and when we sin in these different ways that he's going to list out, it's the evidence that our initial rejection of God has now resulted in this behavior that tears us all apart. It's part of God's wrath. And so Paul lists out the things that ought not to be done. And, and first he gives these general descriptions of sin. Unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And he says, this is not the way humanity acts every once in a while. This is seen throughout societies, throughout time. He says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Unrighteousness is, again, that it's kind of like a general term, just saying we do not do, we do not conform to the righteousness of God. We don't do what God's righteousness should do. Instead, we do what's evil. We could say what's, what's wicked, and we do we're greedy. That often brings about this evil. So, that's not all humanity's full. If he goes on to say they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. You know, a lot of times you'll hear, I was just listening to Tom Hanks' uh, address to Harvard at their graduation, and he's describing how we're all in this together. That's not what our history shows, Right? Our history shows this. We're not a brotherhood and sisterhood of humans. We're envious of each other. We murder and fight and lie to each other. We don't want what's good for somebody else. We want what's bad for them so that we can get something good. That's what this is describing. How do we make that happen? Gossip, slander. This is what you find in society. We set ourselves up over others, including God, starting with God. We put ourselves individually as the most important thing over God. We don't want somebody telling us what to do. We hate it when people tell us what to do. So obviously we're going to hate the supreme example of that, God. That's what he mentions here. But then we elevate ourselves over others too. And you see that in the the three words that follow, being insolent, haughty, boastful. And then comes these two phrases. We're creative in our evil. We find new ways 
to do evil. We're inventors of evil and disobedient to parents. So not only do we extend our evil to new frontiers, but from the start, we are rebelling against the initial frontier. That place, that, that authority structure that we're born into, we transgress that. Then the last four items, they all start with the same letter in Greek, the alpha. Usually when that's a prefix, it's used to negate something, right? So the NIV in 1984 version of the NIV, they tried to show this by translating those last four. Senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We display foolishness in our behavior. We don't do the wisdom that God gives. We behave our own foolish ways. We don't keep our vows or promises. We lack love. And this particular form of the word for love is probably talking about family love. So we don't even have love for those that we naturally should have family or should have love for. You see this in society. And we withhold mercy from others. Now again, Paul is talking about humanity. What Paul's doing, he's not saying that every single individual does every single one of these things. That's not what he's saying. But this is the behavior we find in society. It's the behavior we recognize in ourselves. This is what we need to be rescued from. That when we see this, we see that we've been turned over to ourselves. That this is what we've produced. It's evidence that we need Jesus. That's what Paul's getting at. What verse 32 then says, one, that we're aware of our sin. God created us in such a way that we, we know that our behavior is wrong. We even, according to Paul here, know that we deserve death. We know that. Paul doesn't try to, try to defend it. I know people could come at this and say, well, I, I don't really know that. I've, I don't believe that. I don't think that's true. Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't try to defend it. He just says that's the case. The, the reality is we know better. We know that we deserve God's punishment. But that's, he, he takes it then one step further. Not only do we practice things that we know full well deserve God's punishment. We go beyond that by giving approval to those who practice these things. Now, I think Ken Hughes did a good job of explaining why that's so evil. He explains, man reaches the nadir of depravity, highest point of our depravity, when he heartily applauds those who give themselves to sin. To delight in those who do evil is a sure way to become even more degraded than the sinners one observes. This, I think, was one of the supreme horrors of the Roman Colosseum. Those committing the mayhem were supremely guilty, but those watching and applauding were perhaps even more wretched. You can understand that murder is a horrible act. But imagine a person who, who watches that. And cheers it on. I mean, a person who murders can be caught up in the moment. But a person watching it, entertained by it, enjoying it, applauding it, I mean, that takes a more settled level of sin. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, as we've gone through this whole passage. If you, if you look at a passage like this, what typically gets prominence in our churches, churches that are trying to hold the line, on what the Bible teaches about homosexuality is we focus on the first part of the passage. But that's not the only evidence of our need for Christ. It is one legitimate evidence of our need for Christ. But so is everything else 
Now, in saying that, you, know, you could think, well, maybe that mitigates the disgust that people have or the anger that people have over saying that homosexuality is wrong. I mean, we're saying everybody's a sinner. We all need Jesus, but it doesn't do that. <laughs> in our society, it doesn't make it better to say we're all sinners, including homosexuals. That's not going to fly. And I think it's important for us to understand why. We as Christians need to think through, why is it that someone could listen to what I'm saying and hear it as hate speech? Why could somebody listen to what I'm saying and really genuinely believe? It's not like they're posturing. They really believe it's oppressive what I'm saying. They don't see it as me teaching what the Bible says and saying I believe what the Bible says. They see it as me actually being abusive. We need to try to understand that. Carl Truman points out in his book, Strange New World, that the modern view of ourselves has been psychologized. That's how he puts it. So we understand our identity to be determined by how we think about ourselves. So if we're going to be authentically ourselves, who we really are, we have to be able to act outwardly the way that we perceive ourselves to be inwardly. And on top of that, who we really are internally is now defined primarily by our sexual desires. It's a shift that's happened. So who we feel attracted to, who we want to be with, determines our identity in our world. Even before we've acted on those desires. That's why you have the language of gay, straight, bisexual. That's how people identify themselves. So when, when it comes to this subject of homosexuality, the Bible is focused on behavior. But our society is focused on identity. It's... They're seeing this from a different perspective. It's not simply what we do, it's who we are. So understand the implications for that. Carl Truman spells this out. He says, if we are above all what we think, what we feel, what we desire, then anything that interferes or obstructs with those thoughts, feelings, or desires inhibits us as people and prevents us from being the self that we are convinced that we are. Such obstructions inhibit identity in a deep and substantial way. With the rise of the psychological self, words have taken on a new cultural power, as witnessed by the fierce debates that now rage over pronouns. The use of a word deemed hurtful or denigrating becomes, in the world of a psychological identity, an assault upon the person, as real in its own way as a blow from a fist. When the Christian objects to homosexuality, may think, he is objecting to a set of sexual desires or sexual practices, but the gay man sees those desires as part of who he is in his very essence. The old chestnut of love the sinner, hate the sin simply does not work in a world where the sin is the identity of the sinner. And the two cannot be separated even at a conceptual level. In a time when the normative notion of selfhood is psychological, then to hate the sin is to hate the sinner. He's not saying, in, in saying this, that this is how we should think about it, but that this is how people think about it. And then he goes on to say why we need to take note of it. Christians who fail to note this shift are going to find themselves very confused by the incomprehension of, and indeed the easy offense taken by the world around them. We need to understand why, as we hold the line, People are not only just disagreeing with us, they're offended and even hurt by what we say. So what are we supposed to do? How can we address a subject like this when it comes up in Scripture? How can we talk about this? 
It begins by understanding Paul's purpose in this passage. He's not just addressing homosexuality. He's explaining our circumstances. He's explaining why we need the righteousness provided by Jesus. So, he lists out these sins various places. In 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, Paul lists out men who practiced homosexuality among other sins that he says are contrary to sound doctrine. Then just a few verses later, he mentions, he describes himself as a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent of Christ. And then he says this in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. So, Paul does find homosexuality a convenient example to illustrate how we have rejected God, turned creation on its head, and been turned over to it. But he is not saying it's the worst sin. In fact, Paul views himself as the worst sinner. And what I believe about what he's saying there is if we're honest about ourselves, we should do the same. If you know yourself, you should view yourself the way I view myself as the worst sinner. There is nobody around that is worse than me. If you know your heart, you know yourself better than you can know anybody else out there. And if you know your heart... You know that you're the worst sinner. You know that there's nothing out there that compares to you. But that's not what seems to happen in the church. Rebecca McLaughlin writes, Despite Paul's refusal to cast himself as morally superior, Christians have often confused the Bible's clear boundaries around sex with a license for unloving, superior, and judgmental attitudes towards gay and lesbian people. But while the New Testament is clear on its no to homosexual relationships, it leaves no room for a them and us approach. So when we begin with the reality that we are not morally superior to anybody else, that even if this is not the sin that we express, we've borne witness to a whole list of other sins that we do express. Now, if you can't find yourself in the list of sins that Paul's mentioned here, then I can't help you. And understand, Jesus can't either. He came for sinners. Rosaria Butterfield, who I mentioned before, was a lesbian and a tenured professor in English, in the English department at Syracuse University. Her specialty was queer theory. That was her dissertation. But Christ called, him, called her to himself. And when she turned to Christ, her repentance was very difficult. She says, when I became a Christian, I had to change everything. My life, my friends, my writing, my teaching, my advising, my clothes, my speech, my thoughts. I was tenured to a field that I could no longer work in. I was the faculty advisor to all of the gay and lesbian and feminist groups on campus. I was writing a book that I could no longer believe in. Everything changed. And the change that the Lord brought about was not immediate. She writes, how did the Lord heal me? The way he always heals. The word of God got to be bigger inside me than I. My natural inclination was to resist. So like a reflex, I did this. God's people surrounded me. Not 
to manipulate, not to badger, but to love and to listen and to watch and to pray. And eventually, instead of resisting, I surrendered. You know, unfortunately, that's not what happens in churches always. And Rosaria actually, she witnessed this in the experience of somebody else. She says, shortly after becoming a Christian, I counseled a woman who was in a closeted lesbian relationship and a member of a Bible-believing church. No one in her church knew. I told her that my heart breaks for her isolation and shame and asked her why she didn't share her struggle with anyone in her church. She said, Rosaria... If people in my church really believed that gay people could be transformed by Christ, they wouldn't talk about us or pray about us in the hateful way they do. And then Rosaria asks, Christian, is this what people say about you when they hear you talk and pray? What do we believe? What do we we believe about ourselves? Are we better? Are we like the Pharisee in Luke 18? Do we pray, God, I thank you that I'm not like these LGBT plus people. It's very natural to want to be morally superior to someone. That is so natural. We want to be the hero. We just naturally want to be the hero in the story. But if you're going to be the hero, you need a villain. You can't be a hero without a villain. You know, something remarkable happened Though in the Star Wars saga, uh, to a villain, it didn't happen in the earlier times. Uh, throughout the original story, at least, you know, you, you have one thing you can count on. One, thankfully for your kids, you didn't see blood. But you also never saw the face of a stormtrooper. They were just a faceless entity that were getting killed. And we knew that they were villains that we could, just, we could just not think about. But that all changed in episode 7. For the first time, as one stormtrooper is dying, he bloodied the helmet of another stormtrooper and slimed and just walked, washed blood across the face of his, his helmet. And what that did is it marked that stormtrooper. See, normally stormtroopers are like zebras, and they just kind of blend in. But now we could see one individual stormtrooper and you could see his actions. He was questioning things. He was not sure about it. He didn't know if he really wanted to be a part of this. And then it happened. He took off his helmet. And you saw a face. And then as the story proceeds, you know, we learn that he was conscripted at this really early age. I mean, you get his backstory and you find out, well, he's not really as bad as I would picture a stormtrooper to be. And then something else happens. Stormtrooper FN2187 switched sides and becomes Finn. I mean, he repents, as it were, (laughs) joins the rebellion. And that begs the question, though, doesn't it? Could any other stormtroopers be saved? I know, I know. Stories, we need villains, right? We We need villains, or at least, you know, we naturally want there to be villains that we don't have to think about. I like how Ross King puts it in one of his songs. He says, I need a villain so I can be the hero. I'm more than willing to put somebody in the gallows. I've got some Wi-Fi and some outrage, so all I need to find is a good scapegoat. There's nothing wrong with killing as long as the blood that you're spilling belongs to a villain. Then he goes on to mention a prayer during this song about how he needs a villain. 
And it starts off, and it sounds familiar, and then it shifts. He says, search me, God, and know my heart, but just the parts that aren't needing to be changed. I cannot face the shame of my reality. I need a person worse than me to be the villain. And I think Paul's perspective is better. So in my search for a villain, I find him by not looking outward, but looking inward. Then I find the villain that needs to be rescued. I need to be rescued from, your, from, my, from myself. That's what we all need. We need to be rescued. So take the stormtrooper helmets off of the people that we come across in your mind. No matter what label they give themselves, take off their helmet. See their face. And then take off your stormtrooper helmet and show them your face. Show them the results of the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. And let him address the result of his wrath. Now, we don't give up or give in to the cultural assessments on the world. We, we, we do need to hold the line on the truth. So we don't affirm lifestyles that the Bible won't affirm. And we do that even if we're canceled. But accept anyone. Love them. And accept them as fellow sinners with the same need. We all need to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus. And we can't force that on anyone. So we share Jesus with them. We cannot put any of this mess back in the box. But Jesus can. And he will. Father, we, we need to repent of the ways that we have viewed ourselves as morally superior to others. Pray that you would help us to see that the sin that we view in this world, no matter what it is, it's all evidence of our need for Jesus. Same need that we have. That we are not in a, a privileged position. No matter what lifestyle we, we live before Christ. Paul says in one of his lists. Enlisting all these different people. He again lists homosexuality. Homosexuals. He says. Essentially these, these gay men. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. The early church was made up of people like Rosaria Butterfield. One of the sins that we all struggle with, the, the list of sins, the way that Jesus describes sin of lust, we are all in the same boat on this. So Father, help us to see the truth about ourselves. Help us to see the truth about the people around us. Give us courage 
to be firm and yet still loving. Keep us from the easy out. Keep us from cowardice that just caves on the issue because we, we want to be accepted. We want other people to look well on us, to look at us and, and accept us in the world. We, we don't want the struggle of having to say something hard or difficult. We want to just be able to say the easy thing, say what everybody else is saying. It is so easy to go that route. Your word is clear. There is no way around it. The only option we would have is to say no to your word. Anybody who's honest about the text recognizes that. So give us the courage to rest in your word and what you say. And then as you have transformed our lives by your grace and are transforming our lives and sanctifying us, making us more and more like Jesus, help us to express that same love. Jesus was so good at this that he was even known as a friend of sinners and prostitutes. In our day, he would be known as a friend to those members of the LGBT plus community. Not because he approved any more than he approved of prostitution. Help us. Help us to be friends who love, who accept even while we don't affirm. Help us to be faithful so that when they revile us as those who do what is evil, when they slander us and say we're evil, we're bigots, when they say those things, they'll be able to look at our love. They'll see the contradiction. We need your grace to do that. And again, Father, for anyone here who does not know you, help them to see that they need Jesus just like we do. That they would turn from their sin and trust to the one who died and rose again to rescue them from their sin.